show is brought to you by the Human Resource Executive Magazine's HR Technology Conference and Exposition, held October 1st to 4th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Join me and thousands of your colleagues at the world's largest exhibition of HR technology. Act now using the code HREX and you can receive a $300 discount on your ticket. Thanks. We'll see you there. And by the way, don't miss the Women in Technology segment. Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumser. How are you, Stacey? I'm doing well. I'm sitting in Ohio and a bit of a hard ride. So if you hear any honking, I apologize to everybody out there today, but I'm traveling in Columbus, Ohio this week where it is raining, but the sun's trying to come out. I'm visiting a friend, but that's the wonderful, glamorous life of a visiting podcast radio show personality is that you have to sometimes do your radio shows in unlikely places. How about you, Jerry? You a visiting podcast radio show personality. I think you should put that on your business card. <laughs> Set it that way, Neil? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I'll remember that one as long. So you're deep in you're deep in the middle of finishing up your research work. What's going on there? What are you learning? We're actually, yeah, very, you know, deep in this in this effort. I'm really interested this year in what we're finding out about the deployment models. We were just having a conversation a few minutes ago about sort of this interesting dynamic that's changing and how organizations are deploying their HR technology. And this year we went a little deeper than we've done in the past. We asked about things like hosting and whether or not people are hosting in public or private cloud environments and, and what that might mean from a, a difference in either their own personal on-premise or licensed environments that they have them, or what it might mean if it's a cloud-based solution. So that's kind of interesting. We're, we're going to be diving into some of that, so we'll have some data on that this week, or coming up at the conference, the HR Tech conference that you just talked about when we launched the uh, report. And then also get into a little bit um, this week, analyzing data on you know, workforce planning. That's going to, I think, be another topic that, that we'll have a lot of data on this year. Workforce planning really is coming out as conversation about sort of what you do with the data and how you leverage your HR technology data in a way that's, that's probably most effective for your organization. Those organizations who aren't doing enterprise workforce planning don't seem to be getting as much out of it as those who do, and we'll have some data on that as well. So it's been a fun week just from an analysis perspective. How about you? Well, you're, you're deep in the writing, and you, you're getting into any topics that, that you think everyone should sort of be watching for? Well, let me throw you back to workforce planning for a second. What I'm concluding from the work that I'm doing that it's not possible to have an HR strategy without a dynamic, a detailed workforce plan, because without that, you don't know where you're going. And so I'm, yeah. I'm pretty excited to see what you're learning there. I would imagine that people are starting to figure that out, but it's an HR tech kind of thing. It doesn't really bubble up in the Sherm view of the world. And so I'm going to be fascinated by what you discover there. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised that in your work that you're finding that the strategy and the plan are so tightly tied. I think a lot of people have an HR strategy that's just like, we're going to transform the organization, make it more digital, right? You hear that all over the place. But that's an idea about how you want your technology to work, how efficient maybe you want to be. But that is the workforce plan is the part that ties you to the business. It's, it's what they need to run the business, right? And that's, I think, what gets you more respect, gives you more better outcomes. It's more than just thinking about how we're going to maybe change over our technology. And, and it's a much bigger conversation, right? And you're right. You don't hear it talked a lot about, I think, at conferences that don't talk about data. And, you know, when you're 
need data, you have to have the technology to get data. I think that's why it's all tied together for us and the kind of research that we do. That's right. So for my stuff, I just finished the ethics section of the report, which is about the big front page ethics question is bias. And so there's some pretty interesting stuff about bias in the report. But what I'm starting to believe is that the next generation of management is going to have almost full-time attention on the ethics question. And the reason for that is we're not going to see scary monster AI running wild, stealing people's jobs and taking over the world. But we are going to have a whole lot more mathiness in in our work. We're going to be employing lots of little bits of worker who look like a machine. And those things, they don't, they don't have consciences. They don't have compassion. They don't have empathy. They don't have intuition. And that means that, that unless they're carefully monitored, they'll skew towards solutions that, that may not be the most sound solution for sustainable relations with, with the human workforce. And so it seems to me that the questions of ethics will become common as a way of navigating where we're taking the company over time. And that gets into privacy and transparency and understanding what's good for the company versus what's good for the workforce and what's good for the machines. It's a complicated set of questions that I think is going to take up a lot of time for management over the next couple of generations. Yeah, I think what you're saying is it's going to be a little less Terminator, but maybe a little bit more iRobots, maybe, right? Yeah, the, the machines might start to tell us what they think is better for us, right? Uh, but it's, it's well, going to be very subtle in how they do it, right? Well, so there are these great questions out there. What, what we're doing right now is largely we're automating the way that we've been doing things. So imagine that this is... I hope this isn't a ridiculous example for the audience, but imagine this is Lucy and Ethel on the chocolate wrapping assembly line, right? And what most of the tools that are being brought to market do is try to automate that process precisely. And the truth is that chocolate's made better other ways. <laughs> and, and, and so... <laughs> So that particular way of making chocolate is stupid. And there are more interesting ways that you can make chocolate, but machines don't know how to figure that out. And so yeah, the first I thing... I have that, to say, hmm. if we lost Lucy and Ethel and that great comedy bit, that would be a really sad thing, too. So just, just keep that in mind as you're, as you're deciding how you want to make your chocolate. But I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, and so I don't think it's as ominous as either of those scenarios. It's more like... If you're not attentive, you can lose control of the car. It's sort of like, you, you know, in a lot of the early talk about automated cars, there was a lot of emphasis on keeping your hands on the wheel because you couldn't predict what the car would or would be able to do. And there's that element to what's happening with automation right now is you need to keep your hands on the wheel. And when the car is pretty good at driving itself, it's kind of hard to remember to keep your hands on the wheel. Yeah. And so that's where the problems uh, really start. I saw a very interesting piece about the next layer of problem with self-driving cars. And that is every self-driving car has been vetted and tested in America. Every one of them. 
And so if you take these things and you try to put them in traffic in Egypt or India or Beijing or Tokyo, the rules of the road are very, very different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no lines on the road in India, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, how close you can drive to the car next to you or in front of you and whether what's a safe distance to get in and out of of a gap in the traffic and when you can use your horn and all these things are all very, very different. Same car, same wheel, same engine, but the actual social engagement that constitutes driving is different. And if you think about that model on on a big national scale for cars, it's exactly true about the little scale of companies. So when you see a firm that says it can give you predictive information because it's got a large body of customers, it's just like putting an autopilot American car on a road in India. It's not going to work. I think that's the thing that basically, you know, we tell people all the time that what you need to understand nowadays, what benchmarking you need to be part of, because you can't afford not to be part of these data sets, right? You just have to figure out, because if you kind of put your head in the sand and say, well, I'll just wait until it gets better. If you're not part of it, it'll never have some connection to you or, or look like you in any way from a predictive perspective, right? So is that, do you feel like it's going to have to be a region-by-region region conversation or industry-by-industry industry or a little bit of both to be able to get that sort of right? Company-by-company. Company-by-company, all the way down. Yeah. Company-by-company, company, and the large data set is going to completely ignore cultural context. And cultural context, it turns out, from what I can see, the actual very definition of work is contextual. You know, some co- some companies think that going to meetings all day is work. They really do, and they make a lot of money out of it. They tend to be companies that have billable hours, but they take going to meetings very, very seriously, and that's where the work gets done. And some companies think that going to meetings is a complete waste of time and inhibits work, and so they don't allow very many meetings. And both places do work, but a software engineer in a place that's meeting intensive and a software engineer in a place that's not meeting intensive are two very different jobs. And so what you need to know to understand if the data about software engineers applies in your companies is is there's more than one, but the scale of meetings to no meetings, that matters. That matters. And if you get somebody... huh? Yeah, do you think some of this can be resolved with, you know, we, we've had this conversation before about how people are selecting into our technology these days, and a lot more conversation is about culture. Can some of this be resolved by finding a software that tailors to a certain type of culture? So maybe it's not exactly like yours, but at least the cultures align a little bit better than if they hadn't, and making sure that that's the kind of company that you that you work with? I think cultural alignment is a piece of the question, and it's a very different. My guess is that the software that's good at diagnosing and implementing stuff culture to culture is a decade away because because culture is a a sophisticated and complex problem set. It's not how long does the greeting hug last in your company? Right. And that varies, you know, there are places I go where they don't touch each other. And there are places I go where the, the introductory hug takes 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, that, two minutes. <laughs> that, that, that's a broad variation in social behavior. 
right? Yeah. In some in some companies, you're allowed to tell the truth on engagement surveys, and in many companies, you're not, and it isn't written down anywhere, which makes it hard for a machine to figure out what's going on because there's not necessarily data that shows it easily. You have to know what you're looking for to begin to see it in the data. If this is the challenge that these companies are facing in the future, you know, will you have some guidance in your report that talks a little bit about what kind of decisions they should be making now in preparation for this world that we're heading into? Absolutely. Because if we don't have a culture, yeah, a culture-based organization yet, or culture or, or enough of assessment in some level from, from a vendor to sort of really get to the cultural conversation, you have to be able to make some level of decision today, right? So you're, so you're saying, yeah, she'll have some of that, right? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, there are multiple things, but the biggest thing is understanding the ethics of your company and what ethics really means. I hate the word because, it's, because it, it, it sounds onerous and full of rules. Ethics really means deeply considering the consequences of your decisions, right? So an ethical organization, an ethical 21st century organization will be slower to decide because it's trying to suss out what all of the implications of the decisions are. And we've had, you know, a hundred years of go fast, go fast, go fast, go fast, go fast. But now that we're managing workforces that are part human, part machine, it's going to be very, very important to get a good handle on what this might mean. And, and, you know, if you think about the stuff that's popping into the news all over the place these days, there's an awful lot of, if only they'd thought bigger before they decided. This is the Boeing yeah. 737 problem, yep. right? It's, there wasn't enough ethical decision-making baked in, and it can be done without it being a lot of people in black suits with frowns, (laughs) you know, it can be done with joy and delight, but you have to get into the groove of doing it. Well, and and I think you also have to build a business model that supports it too. I think that's the other conversation that that we've had in the past, which is, I think a lot of times people think about ethics and they also think about it as, as a cost issue too, right? You know, can a sustainable business be an ethical business? That's a constant conversation and many types of, you know, sort of industries and business types and technology is going to be the same conversation, right? If everybody you, else is moving can fast. Imagine, can you imagine your grandchildren listening to a tape of this and going, gosh, back in the day, they thought that the choice was between ethics and money. Just being pragmatic on this one, John. <laughs> I agree with you totally, but I think there's a pragmatic issue is that if financially the ethics don't make sense, then you have to figure out other ways to manage and monitor it, right? Because people will do a lot of things if it works out financially, right? But when it doesn't work out financially, then they're going to have to have other mechanisms to sort of guide them in that direction generally. Well, it's such an interesting thing because Boeing certainly made short-term financial decisions that seemed to be profitable, and they may well have tanked their business doing that. And so the question of sustainability from a financial perspective, this ties into, and I hope we get to the news, but this week, the Business Roundtable, which is the top 500 CEOs in the world, said the idea that companies should be devoted to shareholder value is a bad idea and that companies yeah, should be devoted. A years to figure it out. <laughs> uh, well, no, that's really only a 20-year-old idea. 
it was not the way the businesses were run before the 1990s. The idea that shareholder value is the dominant goal of an enterprise creates the kinds of thinking that you're talking about, where if the dominant goal of the enterprise is sort of the enrichment of employees and customers, or the satisfaction of employees and customers, which is what they're saying, then you get a different a different set of things, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't ship a Boeing seven thirty seven with defective software if you cared about your customers. Well, because you're you're focused on an outcome that's about what that customer is getting out of your product, and obviously safety and security is a big part of what they're getting out of your product, as well as having a a good experience for the environment. But if you're worried about your shareholder price, that shifts to a completely different conversation, right? And, yeah. and you know, we this is not a new conversation, though. I guess the question is, is will it stick this time, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's hop into the news before we run out of time. So predictive <laughs> HR required an RPO. What yeah. do you make out of that? What do you make out of that? This one just seems like it seems like the opposite of all the things we've been talking about, at least as far as you know, we've seen a lot of RPOs and a lot of service companies picking up technology. And we saw a little sort of technology company pick up a small service company, but it was more in the SMB business where they were picking up technology from a, that perspective. This one, I think, is predictive HR. As far as I know, from my experience with them, they're, they're sort of a, an analytics software focused on recruiting, and it's all about the technology, and they've picked up a service business. Is this, I mean, I don't know if you know Method 3 RPO, but... To me, this seems like the, the opposite direction we're seeing a lot of other you know, organizations go, where most technology organizations themselves are trying to let go of their services, where the services businesses are trying to pick up technology. Is this unique to you, do you think? Or is this because maybe they're more of an analytic software company, so they're held to a little bit of a different standard? Or is this just a matter of bringing together their customers who maybe are already working together? This is the same company that also went out in July with a partnership with Engage Talent to offer sort of a, an even broader platform uh, to look at both internal and external employees. So this is something that's been doing a lot of moves lately recently. So. Yeah, I think this must be something pretty interesting because it makes my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the idea of an analytics company providing the services that its analytics dictate, right? Yeah. That's an interesting puzzle. And, and if you use 20th century models, most things that combined recommendations plus the technology that was being recommended had to divest those things. But I'll be very interested in seeing what goes on. The folks at Predictive HR are very forward-looking, and their relationship with engaged talent is sort of an example of that. They have the capacity to do all sorts of science-based predictions. Somebody's going to have to give me a deeper explanation about what the integration of an RPO and that means. Yeah, I'd be interested in finding out if their plan is to maybe try and do, build a better mousetrap, try and do a better job at maybe fixing the RPO process. Because a lot of what we see is the RPO processes by these technologies to make their existing processes more efficient. It would feel to me like the predictive, the predictive HR that I've sort of seen, they're, you know, that maybe they're trying to take their data and do something different. So we don't know until we get a deeper dive, but yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a big trend that I'm seeing of RPO style companies becoming technology providers. And they do it because they have a different business model, right? So so an RPO can sell technology on a transaction basis. 
and they don't have to bother with all of the subscription, blah, 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 blah. And so they have different price points. And the RPO companies are all trying to automate sourcing. So this could be a kind of a different way of doing that. That's my thinking, because I think you know, what we're seeing for most of the RPOs is they're trying to automate how they do their business already, right? What would be interesting is this, are we going to try and do RPO differently itself? That would be interesting. I don't know, but yep. yeah. Because yeah, there's a lot that could be sort of rethought altogether with RPO models particularly with the, you know, contingent workforces, those type of environments, right? Yeah. And, we're, you know, there's there's some other interesting stuff. I, I think, you know, most of the news this week is all about recruiting. I couldn't find a whole lot of other sort of big announcements going on elsewhere. We also saw Fetcher and Smart Recruiters, which is another two big groups of, of big names in the recruiting space. They're combining around, they're, it's just a partnership, it looks like, but they've integrated their their two systems to create a better, I guess they're calling it next generation outbound recruiting platform. Sounds a little bit like this is going to be a mixture of sort of doing high volume and now they can do more tailored recruiting based off of the conversation they're having here. But again, it's this idea that that the recruiting tools need to be combined in some way that if they, they aren't good enough in and of themselves that we're seeing more of this conversation, right? That they have to have connections to each other. Yep. There's a lot of flailing around going on out there. Yeah. I like this Harvard Business Review article about predictive recruiting, right? How do, you, how do you know who's going to quit without getting any inside information from the company? It's such a good idea. It's such a good idea. I think they're, talk, I think they're talking about engaged talent here, but the idea that you can accurately predict who's going to leave a company so that you have a better chance of having a coherent conversation with them about taking a new job. That's what the the Harvard Business Review piece is about. And it looks like there's actual science and validation here. Well, they gave out a survey of what they did to a group of people based off of, I think they had the idea of who would be know possibly risks and then they gave a survey out of who would be interested in looking at job opportunities and sort of followed through those who are most likely versus least likely so this is a mixture of sort of like validation through survey plus taking the data that has been analyzed and, and giving a sense but i think this gets back to your earlier conversation this works in the kind of companies this analysis has been done in right but there might be other type of companies or cultures that it might not work in right so this is very much a cultural conversation i would think Oh, that's an interesting idea. I don't, I don't know how you tell that, but, but, but of course there's yeah. cultural variation. That's a really astute notion. Yeah, and Goring, because they're talking that they have a sample of about 500,000 individuals who they're doing this with. That's a lot. So then it comes down to have I validated what kind of industries have I got in there? What type of workforce types do I have in there? Is 500,000 enough in a world of 7 billion people? I don't know, right? So those are all the questions that have to be asked. But yeah, it would be interesting to see the data and the science behind this without a doubt, because they're definitely yeah, yeah. doing a lot more than seeing another organization. Yeah. That's right. Okay, and is this the last one? How to make, I don't know, let's see. Where do you want to go next? We got room for one more. Well, I think there's some interesting stuff going on in the VR. We want to switch gears a little bit away from, from what's going on in the recruiting space. I don't know if you're watching what's happening and learning a lot right now, but 
the learning space is heating up with virtual reality. Lots of virtual reality going into preparing organizations. There was a big story this, this week about Walmart partnering with one of the um, VR headset groups, and they're going to be doing, unfortunately, but uh, shooter preparation, right, it, for all of their Walmart employees through a virtual reality environment, and they're, they're thinking that could save thousands of lives in situations that, like we had in El Paso. This one in particular is a VR application that is developed with a employee that you're letting go. So it's a, it's, it's a practice firing process. And the employee's personality, demeanor, what they say, how they say, changes based off of how you interact with them and the things you say. And the, so it's not just a pick and select. It's an actual talking virtual reality environment. And this, to me, is starting to really, I, you know, it goes back to they're using AI in this, in this to make them some training examples and some really interesting pre-sort of assessments about how people might react to certain situations. And this is next generation training. I'm not exactly sure, though, at this point, if we're comfortable with the fact that, that this artificial intelligence can do as well sort of predicting how people would react to certain things as we think it can. But, but this is where it's heading right now. Well, yeah, and, and so, so I've spent a fair amount of time talking with Kyle Jackson, who runs Tailspin, which is the company that produces this product. And what I'd say is a couple things. One is you don't have to have a perfect rendering. That's what's interesting. If you get close, what matters in this simulation isn't necessarily what the simulation does, but how you respond. And so there's there's a fairly narrow range of responses to the situation, and this provokes them. And so it's because in difficult conversations like firing somebody, the question is, how do you do it effectively and gracefully and with compassion? And that has to do with how you, the training is how you manage your emotions and your responses in that circumstance. Yeah. Right. And so that may not require a complete high fidelity, full range set of responses. It may be that there are only 10 or 15 points that matter in that. I don't know, but but that's the kind of thing we'll get to look at, isn't it? Exactly. I guess to me, this is the first step towards. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of this stuff coming out of this is not the only one. There's multiple stories in the last six months about sort of virtual reality training. And I think the more and more we get into it, it's going to get into the same situation we're getting into with the recruiting situation in which if someone doesn't react the way your program said they would react when you use the language you said you're going to use, how does that, you know, you're starting to get into this gray area of sort of what I'm teaching you and what you're experiencing. And then all of a sudden you get into the real world situation. And if it doesn't quite match up, are you able to make the switch quick enough or change how you're doing things quick enough? Is the system training you to something that's not quite right? We don't know, you know, until it goes through all those processes, right? So it's better than nothing, obviously, right now. But it's an interesting, I think, thing to be watching and calibrating. Are we doing the right thing with this virtual reality? Because it puts you in a much more realistic and heightened environment than if you're just answering on a piece of paper or something like that or a chat. Yeah, I think part of what you're getting at is what happens with all of this stuff. Once you start really st- studying an arena in a way that allows you to introduce intelligence into it, you start to have questions that you didn't know you had before. So, you know, you know, the question that I have when you say it doesn't cover all of the circumstances ends up being, well, how would you know what all the circumstances are? 
And the really interesting thing is if you start training with tools that, that actually learn, you can start to discover what all of the circumstances are. In the past, all you had was somebody's theory of what they were. And now you can have and, a data and, now you can have a data driven view, but that means in the beginning the training is going to be less effective than it will be in the end. Yeah. And I think my question is coming down to while we're getting through that training period, is there a point at which being in such a hyper realistic environment and maybe learning not the perfect way of doing this, does it have more of a negative impact than being in a different type of environment? And I don't know the answer to that, but but the more we put people in situations which are emotionally charged in one way or another, the more you might end up with like, things happening that you don't expect, right? Both for the people who is being trained and for when they get out into the real world. So it's what happens anytime we go through a transition like this and you need to develop more training and more experience in it, right? Yeah, yep. a lot of interesting stuff going on. Okay, so another great show under the belt. Thanks for making the time in your busy trip to Ohio. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You've been listening to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumser, and we will see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. Thanks, everyone. Bye.